Hey, welcome back to the Night Church Podcast. So glad that you're here. My name is Philip Milosavlovich. I'm your host, one of the pastors here at the Loma Linda University Church. Well, you're catching episode number two. This is a sermon that's by a good friend of mine named Guillerme Borda. He is a PhD student and he's focusing on the very book of Revelation. And so we're in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation, looking at various aspects kind of topically. And this week, you're going to be learning about what does it mean to suffer for Christ in the modern age? Do Americans really know how to suffer? How do you even explain that to someone who's in, for instance, a country that is literally living under persecution? Or the very first century, where persecution was rampant, second century, Christians were being hurt for their faith by what they believed. What does that look like? in this modern age? Well, he breaks that down and he starts with a very theological background for the first little bit, and then he jumps into the modern age. You are gonna really enjoy this. So, looking forward for what you're gonna get from this. And if you wanna submit any feedback, follow us on Praxis Ministry on Instagram. We'd love to hear how you feel about this sermon. All right, well, here it is. It's an honor for me to be here, especially to talk about the Bible. Last week was such a nice experience being here, chatting with Philip and, and Dr. Pauline on the book of Revelation. And I hope that in this series, we can really realize how relevant this book is to our lives today. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to go through verses 8 to 11. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. While you open your Bibles, I want to tell you this. There are things that are true and temporary. And there are things that are false and temporary. There are things that are true and permanent. But there are no things that are false and permanent. Because only that which is true can last forever. Only that which is true can be everlasting. Now, as we go to Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, I want you to have a certain idea in your mind that could be helpful to approach this text and other texts in Revelation, which is the following. This book deals with a lot of contrasts. The contrast between what is permanent, everlasting, and what is temporary or transient. The contrast between what is true and what is false. The contrast between reality and appearance. And the contrast between a heavenly perspective and a limited, sometimes skewed, sometimes even evil, earthly perspective. And at the center of all those contrasts, you have the contrast between Christ and Satan. Keep that framework in mind as we go through the text, and I hope you find it helpful. I want to begin by reading the whole passage with you. Revelation 2, 
verses 8 to 11. Tonight, I'm going to be reading from um, the New King James Version, but I don't know which version you have. But I do encourage you to follow together. Uh, it's very important that you actually go to the text, not just trust what I'm telling you, because what guarantee do you have that I'm going to tell you the truth? I mean, most of you don't even know me, uh, so you shouldn't trust me. But you should trust the Word of God. So I do invite you to please open, whether in your phone or in paper, however it is, but open it, regardless of the version you have, the translation that you have, open it up, and let's follow together. Even if you don't have an app installed in your Bible, go to maybe BibleGateway.com or Biblia.com. You'll find the Bible there, and then you follow together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and it reads as follows. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now in verse 9, Jesus tells the Christians in Smyrna, He tells them that He knows what they're going through. He knows their works, their tribulation, and poverty. But there's this interesting remark here. He says that he knows their poverty, but they are rich. Now, how, how can you know someone's poverty, but almost in the same breath say that they're actually rich? Here I believe that we find one of the instances of such contrasts. The contrast between what appears to be and what actually is. Or maybe more precisely here, the contrast between a heavenly perspective and an earthly perspective. You see, from an earthly perspective, it seems that these people are poor. And that wouldn't be unexpected if they are facing tribulation and with the things that are going on that we're going to get to right next it wouldn't be unsurprising that they may not be doing very well financially. But from a heavenly perspective, especially if you remember Jesus' concept of storing up treasures in heaven, these people are rich. Now the Lord continues, and He tells them that He knows the blasphemy. This blasphemy of these people who profess to be Jews, but are not. In fact, Jesus uses some very strong words about these people, saying that they're actually a synagogue of Satan. Now, this word blasphemy, um, it, it, it's interesting to think about what it can actually mean. Because the word blasphemia in the Greek, it, can, it means to, in this dictionary, the very beloved by New Testament scholars, BDAG, or 
I just talk, refer to it as bidag. It says that blasphemy, or this Greek word, it means speech that denigrates or defames. So it could be translated reviling, denigration, disrespect, or slander. Or it's often translated simply as blasphemy. Now, it is often used with respect to denigrating or slanderous or inappropriate speech regarding God, but it can also be used with reference to people, and that seems to be the use here. It seems, and David E. Aoni, this scholar who wrote this multi-volume commentary on the book of Revelation, maybe one day when I grow up I'll be like him, except in regard, I don't know, but he wrote this multi-volume commentary on the book of Revelation. He presents some very helpful comments, and he helps to see that what seems to be happening here is that there seem to be some people who profess to be Jews, in other words, they profess to be people who are faithful to God, but they don't like the Christians. And they either slander the Christians or even worse, denounce them to civil authorities. And that could get you in trouble. If someone is denouncing you for something, especially when you, in a sense, are guilty of not complying with imperial cult, the worship of the emperor, and if someone comes around and denounces you to the authority saying, hey, those guys, they are not paying their dues, they are not worshiping, they are not participating in this demonstration of loyalty to Caesar, you could be in for some trouble. It could lead to our imprisonment. Now, the text does not, at least clearly in, in any way or explicitly, link this uh, slender with the mention later of throwing in prison, but you could see how it's very understandable that these people pretty soon could end up in prison because there's people who are willing to say bad stuff about them. Now, this idea about these false Jews, these professed Jews, but that are actually synagogue of Satan, reminds me of what Jesus says in John 8, 44, when he's talking to some people that are giving him some hard time and they think they are children of Abraham. And he gives them a dose of reality and tells them that their father is the devil. And here, they also are dealing with some group of, a group of people who, though they profess to be Jews, they profess to be children of Abraham. They profess to be followers of the Almighty God. They are actually instruments of Satan. They are a congregation of Satan. Imagine that. Be religious folk. Go to church. Get together. But actually, it's a church of Satan. They profess to be a congregation of Almighty God, but they are a congregation of Satan. Now then, Jesus tells them that the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't say the authorities will throw some of you into prison. He says the devil will throw some of you into prison. And this is another feature that we find very prevalent in the book of Revelation, which is that the conflict between Christ and Satan is played out in every sphere, every dimension of human experience, including the political sphere. You see here how the devil will throw them into prison, but that doesn't mean that the devil will show up explicitly, grab them and throw them into a prison, but he can use human agents to accomplish his whatever he wants to do. 
And so that's something that we see in this book, that behind what we can see, when you pull up the curtain, and that word revelation itself means unveiling. So when you at least partially unveil reality, you see what's really going on. So the book Revelation is to help us to live in a partially unveiled reality. Now, Jesus is then talking to these people that are not having it easy. They're already poor. They're already in tribulation. There's people willing to say bad stuff about them. But he says there's more coming. They're going to be thrown into prison. This is not good news. But he's writing to, he's speaking, and John is recording this, to encourage them. He wants to encourage them so they will remain faithful no matter what, whatever happens to them. Now, in that um, whole idea of encouragement, he goes then to verse 11 when he tells them that Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So they have this encouragement that they, if they remain faithful, if they overcome, they will not experience the second death. And what is the second death? Open Revelation chapter 21 verse 8. Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, which tells us what is the second death, which will not hurt those who overcome. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, which says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The second death then is this lake of fire that will destroy the enemies of God in the end. Now notice that there's something very interesting here. That Jesus is telling them that if they remain faithful in verse 10, if they remain faithful, if they have remained faithful to the point of dying for Jesus if need be, that he will give them the crown of life. In other words, they'll die, their death will not be permanent, they'll be given life. And he says that the one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. But when we go to this verse that talks about the second death, it also tells you, the book also tells you who will be hurt by the second death in this lake of fire. But the first item on the list is quite striking. What's the first item there? What's the first kind of people? Is it the criminals? Is that what he says? What, is, what does it say? It says the cowardly. You know what they will need to avoid the second death? They will need courage. They will need courage. To remain faithful to the point of death. And Jesus gives them this promise of reward that he will give them the crown of life in verse 10. To reach that point, they got to have courage. Because if they are cowardly, they will not. They'll give in. They'll compromise. And then they will not be faithful to death. They will not get the crown of life. They will be hurt by the second death. So they got to choose. And here you have a contrast between what's permanent and what is temporary. They can choose to be faithful to the point of death 
which is a transient death, a temporary death, and then they won't be hurt by the death that is permanent. Or they may be cowardly and maybe avoid this death, which in the end is unavoidable because at some point we'll all die. And then they will be hurt by the second death, which is permanent. Got to choose. But how can they be courageous? One thing is central that they got to have. Faith. A faith? Why? They got to believe that Jesus is able to deliver on His promise. That indeed, if they choose to remain faithful to Him and they die, that that really is not the end. That really, Jesus can deliver on the promise of giving them the crown of life. So they gotta have faith. Faith that breeds courage. Now Jesus does help them, giving assurance. And the whole book gives that assurance. But if you go to the very first verse in his message to this church of Smyrna, in verse 8, he refers to himself as the one, he says, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. And if you go to chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, when, when Jesus appears to John, and John, uh, wow, it's just an overwhelming experience. But in chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, the same notion of Jesus, who was dead but now is alive, appears there. 1, 17 and 18. Here's John writing, and describing his experience of when Jesus appeared to him. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. See the same concept. I am he who lives and, I, and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus here clearly alludes to his death on the cross and his resurrection. The one who is telling them to be faithful to the point of death is one who died and lives. The one who is telling them that whatever death they experience because they remain faithful, that's not the end, is one who has gone through death himself and lives now. But there's more. It's, there's some striking parallels between their situation and the life and ministry of Jesus. Very interesting. Look at these things that happen both in the life of Jesus and in the current and in the future experience of the Smyrnaeans that they can expect. So, testing and being targeted by the devil. Jesus was tested. He was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. These people will be tested. Tribulation. Yes, Jesus' life was not easy. It was characterized by tribulation and affliction, and so is their life. Poverty. Jesus was poor, so they are. Opposition from people who profess to be children or followers of God, indeed a synagogue of Satan, applies to both. Suffering, being arrested, death, but finally, resurrection and eternal life. In a sense, Jesus is inviting them to be willing to fill out the rest of the list. It's not like it's explicit, but when you put the points together, that's what's going on. He's inviting them to go all the way through. He is the paradigm, the example per excellence of what it means to be faithful. 
I like what one of my professors said, that the way of obedience, the path of obedience, this is Dr. Richard Che, the way of obedience is cruciform. The way of obedience is cruciform. If you want to obey God, you got to be willing, as Jesus said, to take up your cross and follow Him. And Jesus says, the one who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, this message is very encouraging to them because it tells them, even though dying for Christ may seem like the end, it's not the end. You will live forever. That's very encouraging. And for Christians today who suffer persecution, who live in a context where they are the targets of hostility, this is as relevant as it can be. They look at this text and they're like, yes, we get it. This is what we need because this is like us. This is exactly what we're going through. They look at this and like, yes, amen. And so they, they, they really appreciate this notion that the Christian attitude to suffering is informed by an eschatological perspective. They understand that dying for Christ is not the end. Dying for Him is not losing. It's actually winning. Because there will be a resurrection. There will be eternal life. There will be a future of glory. The question that remains is, yes, that's very helpful if you live in some place where persecution happens even now. But what about... You know, honesty, what about us? I mean, right now we have significant religious freedom where we live. So what's the point of me coming here and preaching this? I'll be very honest, this is not an academic exercise. I do believe this is, this is relevant to us. But I want to demonstrate this relevance to you. Number one. This message of suffering for Christ, which is key in the book of Revelation, and in fact, it is one of the most important teachings of the New Testament as a whole. This willingness or readiness or disposition to suffer for Christ, to be faithful no matter what, is so key, but it also is a default feature of Christianity, to Christianity. It applies... And it is a demand upon everyone who wants to follow Jesus. It's not optional. How then can it apply to us? Number one, it needs to pervade my life. It needs to impact every aspect of my existence. For example, am I willing... To be faithful to Christ, no matter what, even if that means some of my friends may think I'm boring and maybe they leave me out? Am I willing to remain faithful to Christ and maybe suffer some professional and financial consequences? Or maybe do I prefer to compromise and break some of God's commandments for professional advancement? Maybe for a period of time and then like, later I'll change. What about my academic life? Am I maybe compromising? Maybe it's promoting some anti-biblical theories or neglecting prayer or compromising my Christian principles so I can, you know, 
give a little boost to my academic career, or am I willing to really be faithful to Christ in every single dimension of my life? So this willingness to suffer for Christ has to be manifested in every dimension of my existence. Now there is more to it. Because the Christian willingness to suffer for Christ should not be merely static, but dynamic. And let me explain what I mean by this. You know, we may say, one day, if something happens and pops my bubble of comfort, and persecution breaks loose where I live, I'll resist. Count on me. Life goes on. It sounds so distant, so distant in the future geographically. It just doesn't seem to really matter. Just like, sure, you can pay lip service to faithfulness to Christ all the way, you know, and it doesn't seem to make any difference. You can continue driving the best car in town. You can continue living a great life. You know, it's just like living the American dream. It doesn't matter. But the willingness to suffer for Christ is not to be merely static, at least I want to suggest that's not how we should appropriate this. We should embrace this in a dynamic way, meaning go wherever and do whatever Christ wants you to do, even if that means putting yourself in harm's way. So it's not just if danger out there happens to maybe one day come my way and we believe it will at some point, then I'll be faithful. It's not just that. It is whatever I have to do, I'm willing to sacrifice, even if it means I willfully step into the danger zone to suffer for Christ. The same way that Jesus did. Because he did not wait there in heaven. Well, you know, let's see what happens. He came to the danger zone knowing he would suffer, knowing he would die. He stepped into harm's way willfully. Now, I'm not telling you that you should volunteer to become a martyr. But you should definitely, definitely pursue faithfulness to Christ. And you know, a missional life, generally, is a life of suffering. A life of faithfulness to Christ, generally, will face opposition. Generally, will face problems. Am I really willing to sacrifice for Him? So that's the second point. The third point is, and I'm, I'm going to talk about a problem and I'm going to try to suggest some solutions. And this is the problem. We may entertain illusory expectations regarding our potential faithfulness. You know, I like the way that a friend and professor of mine, Ante Yeronchi, the way he put it. Sometimes we may romanticize the future. You know, we look at these stories in the Bible, people who are faithful. We read about future persecution and we imagine ourselves in persecution, how faithful we'll be. But nothing in my life tells me that that has any ground in reality. Like nothing tells me that I'm the kind of person that will really be faithful. You know, think about this. If I dream that I'll be faithful, but then, I mean, at the slightest discomfort, I'm willing to compromise. Like, God will understand. He will understand. I mean, there's no way, you know, when really, really 
the game is on the line for my life, for my financial security, for my family, that I'm going to stay faithful. If I compromise left and right for like nothing. So we need to be aware of this danger of entertaining illusory explanations. And I want to suggest a way that maybe we can face this, which is the following. Number one, I suggest that we reflect. Reflect on our lives. And I'll be very honest with you. This message is very relevant to me. I think we should all periodically reflect upon our lives. A serious reflection. And ask certain questions. I have certain questions that I would like to, to share as examples that you can think. For example, am I planning for a life of personal and family comfort at the cost of a missional life? Or you can also think about this question. Do I have a price? Given enough, given the right circumstances, am I willing to compromise? Does my life reflect a true readiness to suffer for Christ? Or does it better fit the culture of comfort? Is my overall attitude in life compatible with letting go of things for the sake of remaining faithful to God? And let me read this quote to you. I finished recently this small but powerful book by Dr. Helen Rosevear, who served as a medical missionary. This book is called Living Sacrifice. Willing to be whittled as a narrow. And she writes, this is very, very thought-provoking and powerful. She says, today, it would appear that we Christians prefer to talk of a measure of commitment. The length to which we are willing to become involved. Rather than the depths of God's immeasurable love in which we long to become immersed. She talks also about an atmosphere of careful calculation. Thus far and no further, maintaining certain reasonable limits. The carefree abandonment of love that marks the sacrifices of Paul, of 2nd century Christians, of 19th century missionaries, seems sadly lacking. Today, we weigh up what we can afford to give him. In those days, they knew that they could not afford to give him less than all. Today, we weigh up what we can afford to give him. In those days, they knew that they could not afford to give him less than all. And as we reflect, we should think, who are our heroes? Who are my heroes? Who are the people that I admire the most? The work of philosopher Linda Tinkhouse Zagzebski, she wrote a, a theory of ethics based on admiration and exemplars, those people who are admirable, whom we want to be like. Her work really helps to understand that admiring people and wanting to be like them is trying to imitate them, emulate them, is a common human experience. And if that is the, if that is the case, we should really think about who are our heroes because chances are we are becoming like them. But do they exhibit the traits of people who are faithful to Christ? Do they exemplify the kind of person 
that I need to be to be faithful to the point of death? Who are your heroes? Who are your influencers? Now, reflecting is not enough. You can do all reflection you want. It's important to make definite decisions and to take concrete steps. Maybe you're neglecting prayer and communion with God. You're not going to make it without prayer. Maybe you're not spending time in the Word of God so it will provide you the framework to guide you, to navigate the challenges that you face. Maybe there's the habitual sin that's separating you from God. So I want to ask you, is there any concrete step that you need to take, any definite decision you need to make toward absolute faithfulness to Jesus? He went ahead before you already through the way of suffering to die for you. And today he asks you, are you willing to be, to be faithful to me, even if it means you have to go all the way to the point of death? He was willing to do it for you and for me. Are we willing to do it for him? Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.